Well, good evening. Tonight we're going to be starting the second part of a two-part series in the study of salvation. Last week, Peter discussed our problem with sin and the need of salvation, how salvation takes place and God's role before and during the salvation experience. And tonight, we're going to discuss the questions, what does salvation look like from God's perspective? Or stated another way, what are some of the benefits of salvation? We're also going to look at what the process of salvation is. So under the benefits of salvation, we're going to be looking at union with Christ, uh, propitiation, justification, adoption, and covenant. And then under the process of salvation, we'll be looking at sanctification, perseverance, resurrection, and glorification. So let's, um, let's start off by opening the word to Romans chapter 3. We're beginning in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We're beginning with this text to look at Uh, the union with Christ that is depicted here, uh, propitiation and justification. And to begin with the union of Christ, our union with Christ is, has a few components. One, it's judicial in nature. Uh, It's also spiritual in nature and it's, it's vital. It's alive. Uh, The judicial component, let's, Look at the setting in a courtroom, in God's courtroom. Our case is called up, and we're instructed to walk up and stand before the judge, God the Father, and account for our sin. But before God pronounces our guilt, and the only rightful sentence of eternal punishment, Christ enters the scene. He comes from the back of the courtroom. He walks up, and he stands now in our place. So we are standing before God, and Christ comes and stands and is unified with us in our faith. So we merge and become one before the Father. So now it's not just us standing here, and it's not Jesus standing on this side and us standing on this side. And God looking at Jesus and seeing righteousness and looking at us and seeing sin. 
But when God judges us, he sees Jesus and us as one and declares us both righteous. All of the attributes of Jesus are incorporated into the believer at the time of salvation. From a legal perspective, you and Christ are one. This is the mystery that God speaks of in Ephesians 5, verses 30 to 32, when he says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So here we see in Ephesians 5, not just this mystery of the union between a man and his wife, but we also see this glorious mystery of Christ and the church, this, this union with Christ that occurs in salvation when the, the two become one. This, that, that's also wrapped up in the spiritual nature because we're joined physically with Christ, but we're also joined spiritually. And this union... Is, is to be vital. It's to be our very life. Christ's life now flows into ours. It renews us. It strengthens us. In John 15, verses 4 through 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. So we see in this image of the vine that, that we are a branch connected to the vine, and the very life that flows through the vine flows through us, sustaining us, and is the very thing that allows us to produce fruit. Just as no branch can survive when it's broken off from the vine, we depend on God for our very life. So in, in summary of our union with Christ, the two are becoming one in body, mind, and spirit. Now let's go back to the courtroom and ask, how is it that God, who is just, can declare a sinner righteous? That brings us to the next point of propitiation, which is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath so that God looks favorably toward us. Going back to Romans, where we are, in chapter 3, verse 25, says, Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. God offered Jesus as a propitiation for our sins to show his righteousness. And also so that he might be just. The sins God passed over before Christ came to earth had to be punished somehow if God was to be just. Someone had to take the punishment for all those sins that would otherwise, uh, otherwise God would not be just. In Jesus, sin is punished. On him, through death, on the cross. And, and he defeated sin in the resurrection, 
so that believers can now live in a new resurrection life here on earth and for eternity. What we brought to the table at the point of salvation was nothing but a huge debt. Our debt was like the debt of the unforgiving servant. It was just as big. It was 10,000 talents, which is really this amount that is immeasurable. Uh, 10,000 talents, if you would take it into you know, modern day money, would be the equivalent of about 3 to $4 billion. We could argue about exactly how much it is, but a lot of money. Something that no one could ever pay. Certainly not that individual and not us. And we are each that servant. We each owed that debt. That's what we brought to the table. We couldn't pay it in a lifetime, and the interest alone on that debt was enough to crush us. It was compounding faster than we could pay it down. In fact, nothing we could do could ever pay it down. Our, our own vain effort to be good and, and to justify us only further condemned us. As we you know, forsook the one true God and sought to be our own gods, to make ourselves better, to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, after trying and failing, trying, failing, to somehow measure up to the standard of righteousness that God wrote on our hearts, God, in his mercy, revealed himself to us and allowed us to see Christ for who he is and to see ourselves for who we were before salvation. Christ was more than just a sacrifice for sin, though. Before he was sacrificed, he lived a perfect life of obedience to God so that his good works would then be credited to us. Romans 5.19 says, By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Therefore, we were transformed from being poor and deep in debt to being rich and free to lend to others from our wealth. Christ's propitiation did not just make us a blank slate. He didn't just erase the debt. And now, here we are. We're released from that debt. No. He took us much further than that because he not only took us from being um, a debtor, he made us a landowner. He's made us truly rich because now, now we stand on the rock, the inheritance that he's given us. So propitiation, propitiation is the payment for our sin, which is found in Christ alone. Justification is the judicial act of God pardoning our sin, accepting us as just, and permanently restoring our relationship with him. Now, you might ask, how is God's justification just? Well, Jesus. He, he paid it for us, as we just mentioned. And as Romans 3, 21 through 25 discusses, we were once separated from God and cut off from him by our sin, but, but he reached out. He crossed over the divide that, that we couldn't cross over ourselves 
And he, he grabbed us with his arm, pulling us f- over from, from our separated state. And, and he literally brought us through the blood of Jesus, cleansing us, taking us from being a debtor t- to a person with an inheritance, making us new. And, and he joins us with himself to be justified is to be eternally secure once and for all Romans 5 1 through 2 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God the means of justification It's faith in Christ. Our only merit for justification is found in Christ. By faith, his righteousness then is imputed to us, therefore justifying us before a holy God. And as we give ourselves in faith to Jesus, Jesus gives us his gift of righteousness, the one that he earned, that we can receive freely in faith. Now, justification lays a foundation. It's not an end in its own. It lays the foundation for our adoption. Once we are justified in Christ, we can be joined to God in adoption and experience true union with God. No longer is there any separation. Now we can experience true unity with God forever. So to summarize justification, it's God's one-time declaration that we are righteous because he sees us as being merged with Christ. Now in adoption, we are transferred from alienation and judgment into acceptance and favor. From a debtor to a landholder. Let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 3. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And I would add forever. Forever we are sons and daughters of Christ. Because he accomplished it. He he saved us. If we are found in him with faith, we're his. That's why he has saved us. Now, adoption and regeneration accompany each other as, as two aspects of salvation that Christ brings. John 1, 12 through 13, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In adoption, we receive 
relationship with God. The right to become his children. In regeneration, our moral nature is, is transformed. We're, no longer are we born of the will of the flesh. Now, we're born of God. So what, what's the takeaway of adoption for us? I think the takeaway is God didn't set out to just clean up humans. He's not out to just get us cleaned up. Okay, we have this whole race of people with a sin problem. I'm going to clean them up. And then, and then that's the end of the problem. But he's done so much more than that. See, from the very beginning, God created us to worship him, to be in fellowship with him, to be part of his family. And sin had separated us from that. It, it, it cut us off. So that, so that we couldn't be what we were created to be. And now that he wipes away sin, he wants sons, he wants daughters to be in a familial relationship with him. He created us to give him glory as sons and daughters. He wants us to image his character. And he's given us everything that we need for that. He's given us Jesus the Holy Spirit, and he's given us one another to encourage, to exhort, to remind, to go back to him as we need. So in adoption, we become members of God's family. We also become part of a covenant. A covenant simply isn't an agreement. Now, covenants can come in many forms. They can be negotiated back and forth, or they can be imposed uh, by one side to the other. Now, when God makes a covenant with his creatures, he alone is the one to establish its terms. We don't get to negotiate our terms. Uh, many of us probably have had an experience of, of coming to God at, at some point in our lives and, and trying to negotiate those terms. I... I I include myself in that category um, because when I, when the Lord started drawing me to himself, my heart was softened for him, but, but still I had this very strong sense of you can't come on this turf. There's something that I want to hold back as a remnant from you. And yet he was so merciful and so faithful to just go after that right away. <laughs> that's what I want and I'm taking it and it's going to be a delight and man the release and, and the restoration and uh, glory of a complete surrender and knowing whose hands I'm in whose hands we are in when we just allow ourselves to come on his terms what a good exchange. Now, God, uh, one of the glorious things about the covenant with God is that God both initiates the covenant and he fulfills the covenant. That's a little different from your normal promise or covenant or contractual agreement. Uh, in Genesis 3, right after the fall, God made a covenant when he spoke to the serpent I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God foretold the coming of Christ, the second Adam who would defeat the power of sin. God fulfilled that covenant for us through Christ. Though we had broken fellowship with him, he will remember and has remembered his covenant with us and never departed from it. Now, we've discussed the benefits of salvation, uh, union with Christ, propitiation, justification, adoption, and covenant. Let's discuss now the process of salvation in the life of the believer. We start with sanctification, which is a continual work of God in the life of the believer, which makes him holy. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it describes it as this, the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. How is sanctification different from justification? Well, justification is a one-time judicial act declaring us righteous. It's all or nothing. Sanctification happens in stages. It's progressive. There, there are different levels of sanctification in a believer's life. Justification is the objective work relating to our standing before God. And sanctification is the subjective work that God is bringing about in our inner person. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 gives us a picture of the sanctification process. And beginning in verse 20, 22. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone competes for the prize. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So in justification, we're freed from the bondage of sin so, so that we can run this race to receive the imperishable crown. Before, we couldn't even run the race. We were trapped. We were weighed down by 10,000 talents of sin. You can't run a race like that. But God lifted that off of us, unified us with Christ, adopted us into the family, so that now we're running the race. But let's not get an image of us running this race ragged, um, you know, without proper training and, and, and God just hanging out around the corner waiting to disqualify us. We're part of his family. He sent Christ for this very purpose, so that we could run this race with perseverance, so that we could finish it. So in sanctification, we're increasingly changing from what we were to what we now are. God has declared us righteous in Christ. That's what we are. And what we are becoming more and more like. 
there's, there's a certain synergistic effect that takes place in sanctification because we're, on the one hand, we're becoming more alive to God. And on the other, we're, be, we're being more and more freed from sin's dominion. And the two are self-reinforcing. As, as we're becoming more alive to God, we're, be, becoming, uh, we're living in greater freedom from sin's dominion. Also in sanctification, God implants new desires in us. A desire for Him. A desire for holiness. A desire to glorify Him, to, to worship Him, to, to pray, to um, love Him, to serve, to honor, to please Him, and to show love to others. Now we, as we run the race of sanctification, we are to be confident in our justification. We are to be confident in our justification, no matter how ragged we get, no matter how many times we stumble in the midst of this race. God has justified the believer, and God is there to pick us up, to put us back on the course, so that we can finish this race. So here's a question that I want to pose. Can we be assured now that we will obtain the prize? That we will finish the race and have eternal life? How, or stated another way, how can we know that, that we'll finish the race and receive the crown? I'm arcing into a topic now of doctrine referred to often as perseverance of the saints. And there's, this is the topic of much debate. And... Um, I'm going to give it about 10 minutes, so I'm trusting uh, in a lot of, for a lot of grace. This is something that's been debated for hundreds of years and um, by very sophisticated theologians. But a couple views that I'm going to lay out there are, one, the Calvinist view, which is since God has elected certain fallen individuals to receive eternal life um, and the, the chosen will receive it, there must be a permanence to their salvation. So if one falls away, it's evidence that they were never saved. There's the Arminian view, which is one can be saved and that it's possible to lose one's salvation. I'll be making a case for the Calvinist view, which I believe is supported uh, in Scripture. Let's begin with 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Where God describes an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're spending a little bit of time in that. Last week in the first part of this series, 
we heard um, Peter speak from verse 30, which reads, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Paul is using the past tense here, and he sees the future event of glorification as though it's already occurred for those who have been saved. It's as good as already having occurred. There's a guarantee. What was described last week as this unbroken chain of events, from being predestined, to called, to justified, to glorified, it, it's unbroken, and it's prophesied by Paul as, as something that is a guarantee for the believer. Paul has such a certainty about the eternal assurance of the believer that he doesn't stop there. He goes on, and in the rest of the chapter, he says, What then? Shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up from a, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall be, bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, may that resonate in our hearts. May we understand this. And see that being found in you, Lord, nothing can separate us. We also see in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So we see here in, in John that we are his sheep. If we by faith come to know Jesus and are saved, we're part of the fold. And, 
And if we happen to be the, the one of the hundred that's wandering out there and lost, he's not going to lose us. He's not going to let us be snatched away. What does he do? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. That's, that's the extent of his love for us. He's not an image of a God hiding around the corner waiting to say, Ha! You messed up. You're disqualified from the race. That's it. No. He's a God who sent his son to die for you so that you could be in right relationship with him. And also is one who wants to go bring you back when you've stumbled when you've wandered that's the extent of his love so I'll raise the question again how can we have assurance that we will persevere until the end the easy answer to this question is well to continue in the faith until the last day might sound a little glib or circular but it's the truth in Colossians 1, 22 through 23, Paul writes, God will present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Let's look at what this picture here is not. It's not one of perfect sinless behavior, but one of going back to God's word. Seeking his truth. Calling upon him in our time of need. And when we fail. Always keep coming back to him. And remain in fellowship with the body. That's, that's persevering. That's faith continuing. It's not giving up. It, it doesn't mean perfection. But it does mean that we won't be moved away from the hope of the gospel. No matter what happens, no matter what happens as Paul lists in the end of Romans 8, no matter what happens, we will not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. We keep going back to the source of our life. Now, there's some other questions we can ask ourselves to, to discern if we have uh, an eternal salvation that will last to the end, if we will be persevering. Wayne Grudem suggests the following three questions that we ask. Do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? Is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? And do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? So do I have a present trust in Christ for salvation? If I were to die tonight and stand before God's judgment, would he judge me righteous or corrupt? And if righteous, what is that based on? Based on my own works? Based on how good a Christian I've been recently? Or is it based on Christ fully and his sacrifice that I'm putting my faith in? Now, is there evidence of a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Galatians shows us the evidence we're to look for as a sign that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We should see some fruit. 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Look for some of this fruit as evidence of your eternal security in Christ. Pray that God would yield this kind of fruit from you as the Spirit indwells you. And let the first fruits you observe be a sign of the guaranteed inheritance you've received in Christ as you believe in him by faith. Now the next question, do I see a long-term pattern of growth in my Christian life? Can you look back and see progress? If you're a new believer, do you see some, some small, immature fruit? doesn't have to be ripe. Do you see some fruit? For those of us who have been um, walking with the Lord for a long time, is the fruit ripening? Are there new fruits? What kind of fruit have we seen in the last several months? Or even more recent? And if we're not seeing it, let's press in and ask the Lord to make it come. Because is it up to us to bear the fruit? We're the branches in the vine. We can't bear fruit on our own. We're to abide in the vine. And if there's no fruit, then that's a good diagnosis that maybe, maybe we've become detached in some way and we need to reconnect. But as we stay connected to the vine, God will be faithful to bear fruit. Now, for those who may be struggling with knowing whether they're going to fall away on the one hand before the end of life, or questioning whether they have a genuine salvation, I would encourage you to rest in this, that the Lord loves you. He loves you enough to send His only Son, Christ, to live a perfect life in the worst of circumstances, to then be crucified to atone for your sin. Let there be no doubt that the Lord has called you to himself. If you put your trust in him, you will be saved for eternity. We just read, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He didn't just give us his son for a momentary experience of salvation and then to fall away and experience punishment. He gave us Christ so that we might have an eternal inheritance, one which will never perish. His word says, he who believes in the son has eternal life. John three thirty six. Jesus also backs up his purpose for coming by saying, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day. He doesn't want to lose any of us. This is the God 
who leaves the 99 sheep to get the one. This is the God who we worship. This is the God that has adopted us. So to summarize perseverance, it's not perfection. It's a continual return to the Lord. Every day, we can be released from our sins as we turn to him and cast our cares upon him. And we can cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. We can go back to him every day, falling at his feet, trusting in him, asking him to make us new. And in fact, that's exactly what he wants us to do. Now for the believer who keeps turning to God and putting trust in him, we can look forward to resurrection. Now, there seems to be some assumption by many in our culture that resurrection is for those who believe in it. Okay? And everyone else just kind of becomes one with the earth. We're going to dispel that myth here. Um, Because resurrection of the dead is for all humans. Not just believers. In John 5.28, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Jesus will raise everyone, but only those who have persevered in faith will be glorified. So what is glorification? Glorification is the moral and spiritual perfecting of the believer. It's the completion of the work God began when he regenerated us. When we are glorified, God finishes the work of turning us into sinless creatures in eternal bodies. It's, it's what we are progressively working toward in sanctification throughout our life. We're, we're getting closer and closer to the point of resurrection and ultimately glorification. We see a beautiful picture of this in 1 Corinthians. If you'll turn with me there. Chapter 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, 
it is raised in incorruption. So our physical body in this text is compared to a seed that must die and be buried. So that from this seed that we are given, something more glorious springs forth. Something wholly different from, from <clears throat> what we ever imagined. We see more of the, um, more of the differences with the glorified body as compared with the, our earthly body as we continue. It is sown in dishonor, speaking of our earthly body. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. We see here the parallels between the man of dust and the heavenly man. It's Adam and Jesus, the second Adam. If, if we bore the image of Adam, which we all do, case in point number one, our sin, then if we have persevered in faith till death, we will bear the image of him who adopted us, Jesus, the second Adam. We will exchange this corruptible body of flesh for an incorruptible body of spirit. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This, this is what we're looking forward to. This is the glorious change that will occur as our body goes from perishable to incorruptible. As we are transformed from dishonor to glorious, from 
a weak body to powerful, from a physical to a spiritual. And we're also going to experience a fullness of knowledge, like we can only strive to achieve on earth. We, we see in Scripture, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. We'll also be completely blameless before God. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And then we can confidently read the final verse of this chapter. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our labor is not in vain in the Lord. The race that we're running is not in vain. It's not a small commitment that we've made. It's not a sprint that we'll be able to finish quickly. It's something that we labor hard in. That the Lord gives us the gift to labor in. That he meets us each step of the way to continue to persevere in faith. And we can be confidently we can be confident that our salvation is something that the Lord has brought about and that he will help us persevere in. So let us pray. Lord, thank you for canceling the debt of sin for those of us who put their trust in you. Lord, it's, it's just glorious that once we had rejected you, and we wanted nothing to do with you. We were completely cut off. And we deserve punishment. But you have adopted us. You've brought us into your family. And you are now giving us everything that we need to persevere until the end. And we confidently await the glorious hope of finishing the race. Going before you and, and hearing you proclaim, Well done, good and faithful servant. Pray that everyone in this room would be part of this inheritance, Lord. May it be so. May it be so, Lord. Accomplish your work in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.